0: We turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 13, and let me say, um, just in case you're thinking, we have been going somewhat slow, slowly through this chapter, and part of the reason for that is that the subject matter each week I find to be worth spending time on. The likelihood of our coming back to some of these topics, subject matters, at least in the short run, is not very likely, Um, and that is the reason for that, because when we are preaching through books of the Bible, each week our presentation is really driven, is really based by the particular text, and some of these um, subject matters, as I said, will never come back to them for a very long time, and so I believe that it's worth spending time but this morning we're going to try to cover two verses in fact by God's grace we are going to cover two verses we have been doing one verse um, for the past two weeks one verse one one week verse two another week this week we're going to do verses three and four so that's a bit of good news so to speak and this morning we turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and we're going to read verses three and four Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. As we have established in previous studies, Hebrews 13 marks a new juncture in the epistle. And this chapter is largely concerned with the practical outworking of the doctrinal truths the writer had been discussing in previous chapters. With a call to brotherly love in chapter 13, verse 1. Verses 2 through 6, we said, seem to set forth some of the ways in which such love will be expressed. As such, they make the point that brotherly Christian love manifests itself in tangible, practical deeds aimed at the good of others, especially those who are of the family of God. Last week, we saw That brotherly Christian love is expressed through hospitality, not just toward the saints, but toward strangers. And beginning with verse 3 this morning, we see, secondly, that brotherly love, brotherly Christian love, or Christian brotherly love, is expressed through solidarity with the suffering. Brotherly Christian love is expressed through solidarity with the suffering, We read in verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The whole context of the epistle suggests that the prisoners and those mistreated cited here in verse 3 were believers who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And you'll see hints Of this in chapter 11 and verse 36, which speaks of those who, in the exercise of their faith, suffered mockings and floggings, along with chains and imprisonment. Also, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 23, which makes reference to Timothy's release, to his being set free. The writer says there, "...know that our brother Timothy has been set at liberty." As we consider this matter of imprisonment for the faith, we cannot but think that even on a morning like this, there are countless number of Christians throughout the world, especially in communist and Islamic countries who are paying dearly for their faith in Christ. Languishing in prison, many of them have little or no recourse, little or no proper legal protection, You have no doubt heard the saying, out of sight, out of mind. And the point is, locked away as they are, sometimes for years, nothing heard about them. It's so easy, so easy for us not to be mindful of them, not to remember that they exist It's so easy for us to not be mindful of the pain, the torture, which many of them are going through. And there are many who are suffering, languishing, incarcerated, even as I'm speaking to you this morning, all because of their faith in Christ. And as such, the writer's exhortation here in verse three is ever timely, it says dear, that we are to what? Remember them. Remember them. Keep them in mind. Don't ever forget them, is what he's saying here. And the question is, how do we remember those Christians in prison, those who are being mistreated, those who are being harassed, those who are being tormented, tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ, those who are being abused? And let me suggest some practical ways in which you and I can remember them. First of all, we remember them by empathizing with them. We remember them by empathizing with them. Note once again, verse 3, remember those, the writer says, who are in prison as though in prison with them. The writer is saying here, put yourself in their shoes. Think as though you were there in prison with them. Enter into their pain and their plight, as it were. He's saying to his readers, try to understand what these people are going through, even as they are suffering confinement, even as they are being incarcerated and being mistreated for the name of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we see examples of how these Christians, that is, those Christians to whom the epistle was being addressed, participated, how they empathized with those who were in prison. And there in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, the writer says of them how that they were partners, notice that word, they were partners with those who were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Koinonia, in fact the specific word koinoi, the root of which word is translated fellowship, is the word that's used here for partners. And the idea here is that there is to be a bond of fellowship, as it were. There is to be a bond of sympathy. There is to be a fellowship of sorts with those believers who are suffering for Christ, who are being incarcerated. These Christians, by partnering with those who were suffering affliction, entered into their pain, entered into their suffering, as it were, Because notice verse 34, the writer says there, they had compassion on them. That is to say, they felt with them, they suffered with them, because that's what the etymology of the word compassion means. Come means with passion, has to do with feeling, with suffering. So when we exercise compassion, what we are basically doing is we are suffering with the individual or individuals, as it were. And on account of their compassion for their brethren, their solidarity with them, notice verse 34, they went as far as suffering the seizure of their property. For the sake of their brethren who were in prison, the Bible says here, they suffered the seizure of their property. And why were they able to do so? Because of their shared humanity, their sense of shared humanity with their suffering brethren. Such emphatic suffering is empathetic, suffering is implied in ver- the last laws of verse 3. Notice what the writer says since you also are in the body. Saying here, since you are in the body, you should know what it is like, what it feels like to be in such situation. So, one of the ways you and I can remember those who are in prison, those who are being mistreated. For their faith in Christ, those who are being abused, physically tortured, is by empathizing with them, by being compassionate in our hearts toward them as we think of them. Secondly, we remember those who are in prison, who are being mistreated by praying for them, by praying for them. Acts chapter 12 verse 5 relates how that when Peter was cast in prison peter had been preaching the authorities the religious authorities did not take kindly to that and while he was kept in prison the word of god says there in acts chapter 12 verse 5 earnest prayer for him was made to god by the church they kept praying for peter In Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul rejoiced on the grounds of knowing that through the prayers of the Philippian Christians, for him, here's what he says, the bold preaching of the gospel resulting from his imprisonment would turn out for his deliverance. And praying for suffering in prison believers is certainly one of the most impacting and important things we could ever do For those who are confined in prison. and Among the things we can pray for as we think of the persecuted Christians, as we think of those who are in confinement for their faith in Christ, is to pray for their spiritual and emotional stability. We can pray that God might strengthen them that God might fortify them in their resolve to maintain their stand for Christ. You see, being an hostile environment as it often is, particularly for Christians, prison can easily break one's spirit. Sending one into despondency, into doubt, yes, and even despair concerning the trustworthiness of God's promises. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he preached boldly. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was a fiery preacher. He was a very vocal, if not vociferous, preacher. But then there came a time after he was imprisoned, we read in Matthew chapter 14, he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus this question, are you really the one who should come, or are we to look for another? What was happening there? John, being in prison, languishing in prison in a desolate area, was, we could say, In a state, it seems, of discouragement, he began to have second thoughts, as it were, concerning who Christ... Are you really the Christ? Or should we look for another... And Jesus was being, sympath- being sympathetic to John in his situation. He, he said to John's disciples, "Go back and tell John again the things that you have seen and heard. The blind are seeing, the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me, who is not offended in me." It happens. Prison breaks many a person. And the Christian is not exempt from discouragement. The Christian is not exempt from despair. The Christian, like anyone else, can, apart from the grace of God, buckle under pressure to quit. And that's why we need to pray for them. And then, thirdly, we remember those who are in prison. Yes, by empathizing with them, by praying for them, but we remember those who were in prison, thirdly, by providing assistance and encouragement for them. You see an example of this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 18, where the Philippian Christians, as Paul was in prison, Paul writes, in fact, he says in chapter 1, No other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you only. He says, from the first day of the gospel until now, you have been partakers of my grace. And in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 18, he says how that they sent once again for, with respect to his necessities, even while he was there in prison. You can see all that in Philippians 4, 10 through 18. These Christians, the church at Philippi, prayed for Paul, no doubt, while he was in prison. Yes, by his own admission, they prayed for him, but they also shared in his necessities. They shared with him of their material goods. In the ancient world, it's not like today where when a person goes to prison, food is provided for them, there's lunch, there's um, room, whatever, for them. In the ancient world, when a person was sentenced to prison, when a person was in prison, they had to find their own food, their own clothing, Now, some prisons today will allow for visitors and they will allow for, I think, if I'm not mistaken, some I know don't, like taking food items. Some will not allow it, but here's the point, here's the principle. Even where that is virtually non-existent, the opportunity for helping materially while they're in prison, we can certainly provide assistance and encouragement for their families. In fact, Christian conscience dictates that we should. Here's a pastor, a missionary, who, on account of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and his word, is imprisoned. It's thrust into prison. It has happened elsewhere. It happens in Canada. It can happen here. And what do you do if your ministers are thrust in prison for the right reason? His wife and children, their wives, their children are out in the cold, so to speak. What greater expression of love, what greater expression of support we can show them by rallying around them with material, their material needs? where we can. We read in James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The principle of this verse holds true for families of imprisoned Christians. In fact, we recall the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verses 36-43, Matthew 25, 36, 43, citing the importance of our showing solidarity with those who are suffering, particularly those who are in prison. Our Lord Jesus said, "There, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Of course, the righteous will answer, When did we see you sick and hungry? When did we see you in prison and visited you? And he 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 will say to them in as much... As you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it also to me. And vice versa, he will say to those on his left when they protest, Lord, when did we see you in prison and did not visit you naked, sick, and did not minister to you? He will say in as much as you did it not unto me, did it not unto the least of these my brothers, you did it not unto me. So Christian love, brotherly Christian love, is expressed first of all through hospitality, not just towards saints, the saints, but towards strangers. We saw that last week. Brotherly Christian love involves solidarity with the suffering, particularly those who are suffering for the sake of Christ, those who are imprisoned, those who are being mistreated, for their testimony for Christ. And we consider finally this morning, thirdly, that brotherly Christian love is expressed through purity in sexual conduct. Brotherly Christian love is expressed through purity in sexual conduct. Here's what he says in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now on the surface, this verse seems somewhat unrelated to the theme of brotherly Christian love. Remember we said verses 1 through 6 contextually appears to be enlarging on this theme of brotherly Christian love. And on the surface, this verse seems somewhat isolated But if we do a close reading, if we consider this carefully, this is not the case. It's not the case when we stop to think of it because the truth is where there's no proper relational boundaries between members of the opposite sex in the body of Christ, Christian love soon degenerates into impure, improper conduct. Perhaps it was with this in view that Paul instructed young Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus at that time. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter five and verse two, that in relation to the women in the church, he should regard,, "all the women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity." You see, Christian affection as endorsed by Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, 2nd Peter 1 and verse 7 does not mean this. It does not mean that men and women in the church are without boundaries when it comes to how they express Christian affection. And I would say there's need for great caution, there's need for great wisdom and sobriety in this matter, for example, it is most unwise for persons who are married to be too chummy, to be too jovial, to be too much let down with the opposite sex who is not their spouse. You know, I've been in situations over the years in churches where you know, you see this kind of letdown situation where, you know, this brother will go to that sister and be, give a hug, and they talk about the side scriptures such as greet one another with a holy kiss, and you have this situation. And I tell you something, what happens, and what I've observed throughout the years, is that there comes a time when some of these things end up in moral disaster. We are to express affection, brotherly affection one for another, but that does not mean that we discard, that we do not recognize proper moral boundaries. We want to love one another, but we want to keep it, particularly where the opposite sex is concerned, particularly for married couples, married people, to not be too chummy, jovial, With the opposite sex. Now, and I need to be careful. Why? Because in saying this, I don't want to come across as being legalistic. But here's the point that I'm making. We need wisdom. We need wisdom. Because here's the truth. Sometimes things like that can be done. And wrong messages are sent. Whether wittingly or unwittingly, that that's why we need to be careful. Now, where there's a deep affectionate chemistry between unmarried persons of the opposite sex, nothing is necessarily wrong with that, provided, provided that once again they establish, and this is the key, they establish proper boundaries with respect to how they work out such relationships. Young as well as older Christians who are attracted one to another, to the opposite sex, need to commit themselves to purity until they get married. What that means is there's then the need for them to be on the lookout for and avoid tempting situations under which they could potentially fall in sin. By way of examples, admonitions, and cautions, we have in Scripture, the Word of God shows the need for caution. In fact, as many as three times in the Song of Songs, otherwise known as the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, and verse 7, chapter 8, and verse 4, there's a warning issued regarding awakening physical intimate love. That's a piece of instruction that's worth carefully noting. Why? First Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's the truth. None of us is so strong as to be beyond falling and failing miserably. The question then is why the need for establishing boundaries of sexual purity? Look at verse 4. He says there, let marriage be... Held. He says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That word honor in the Greek speaks of that which is of great price, that which is consequently precious and most valuable. It is the word that Apostle Peter uses in connection with what he describes as the precious blood of Christ that word that is used here for honor is the very word Peter uses when he speaks of the precious blood of Christ first Peter chapter 1 verse 19 it is the same word he uses when he speaks in second Peter 1 verse 4 of the very precious and great promises of God And the question becomes, then, why is marriage to be so highly esteemed? Why is it to be so valued? Here is the fundamental reason why it is to be revered, it is to be honored, it is to be esteemed. Because, you see, God himself instituted marriage at creation there in the Garden of Eden. God himself, not society, Not the culture, not the state, was the one who instituted marriage there in the Garden of Eden. And what we need to understand further is this that he did so before the fall. Why is that important? Why is it important to say that he did so before the fall of Adam and Eve into sin? Because this establishment of marriage was not an afterthought on God's part to facilitate man's sinful fallen condition. It's not that God is saying, well, oh, here are these sinners now. Boy, to really keep things together, I'm going to institute marriage whereby they can, you know you know, deal with their fallenness. No, God created marriage as something good, as something pure, as something holy in and of itself. That's why it's honorable. And Jesus shows us how honorable marriage is by the fact that at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, he presented himself. Remember, he turned water into wine. Jesus attended that wedding signifying his is is recognition of the high esteem of this divine institution, and so establishing boundaries of sexual purity as an expression of Christian love requires that we give the highest regard for the institution of marriage, such that sexual activity is strictly confined to the bonds of marriage. When we talk about marriage, we're talking specifically a marriage between one man and one woman. One man, one woman. Which means that any so-called redefinition of marriage that would allow for two persons of the same gender to get married, this desecrates and dishonors God's institution of and his intention for marriage. Let me say this. That far from being a marriage, such forbidden arrangement is nothing but a mirage. It's not a marriage. It's a mirage. And it's a deadly mirage. Why? Because those things lead to the ultimate destruction of society. Look back at the Canaanites. Look back at the Roman Empire. Look at our culture going down, sinking, sinking, sinking daily into degradation on its way, if not for the intervention of God's grace to destruction. And according to our text, continued defiance of God's will, of God's purpose for marriage, incurs his judgment, as the author says in verse 4b. Notice what he says in verse 4b. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Notice what he does here in verse 4b. He covers the whole spectrum of illicit sexual activities. Whereas the sexually immoral refers to those who engage in any kind of sinful sexual activity outside of marriage, the adulterous refers to those who violate those who violate the sanctity of their marriage by becoming involved with someone other than their spouse. Now, here's something that is true in our time. It's prevalent in our time. And I would say this, it has become fashionable. Even among Christians. To jump on the cultural bandwagon, so to speak. And take on worldly, ungodly ideas on this matter of sexual activity and marriage. We're not talking about the world now. We're talking about Christians. We're not talking about unsaved people. We're talking about Christians, professing Christians. There are professing Christians, and notice I qualify by saying professing Christians, and there's a reason for that. There are professing Christians who, while married, will hold the mindset which goes something like this. Well, I'm not happy in my marriage. And God, I know, wants me to be happy and fulfilled. He wants me happy. He doesn't want me in a miserable marriage. Therefore, he wouldn't mind my leaving my present marriage. He wouldn't mind my taking some other person who will make me happy. He certainly understands my situation. He wouldn't see that as a sin. You know, there are professing Christians who think like that, who actually act that out. In fact, believe it or not, that's one of the prevailing ethos in many a church in our time. My friends, there are churches. where even ministers. And I, you know, I shudder to say, because I know we have young, um, we have a young audience too, but there are ministers who act in unbecoming ways when it comes to this matter. In the congregation, it happens. There are people living together. There are people who are in adulterous relationships right in the church, and the church does nothing about it. We're talking not unsaved. We're talking not about people who profess Christ, faith in Christ. We're talking about professing Christians. And that's why these words of our text must be brought to the forefront of any discussion on Christian living, on what it means to conduct oneself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me say this. When we become joined to Jesus Christ, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, you know this very well. I'm just saying this. I'm saying something that we all know. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, there's a different standard from the standard of the world. The world, the culture, does not set the agenda. It is the Bible, the word of God, that sets the agenda for how we live, particularly in the area of sexual conduct. It is said of Bishop Hugh Latimer, who often preached before King Henry VIII. And you would know the story of King Henry VIII, how he severed the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, and the reason he did that was because the Pope would not annul his first marriage. And this king was known for his six marriages. Well, Bishop Hugh Latimer often preached before King Henry VIII, and it was his custom to give him a birthday present. Whenever his birthday came around, Bishop Latimer, in addition to preaching, would give him a present. And on this particular birthday of the king, Bishop Latimer presented him with a handkerchief bearing these very words of our text, Hebrews 13, Verse four: Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And, my friends, let me say this: that because the culture promotes it, and because society. Normalizes it. One might be tempted to think it's okay to go with the flow, to go with the culture, to go with what's popular, and to think that somehow it's okay. But here's the truth. As sure as day follows night, the word of God teaches that those who are given to that lifestyle, those who are continually giving themselves to such practices, are not Christians and they're not going to heaven. That's why we use the word professing Christians. The word of God, can, let me say this by way of clarification. Any one of us can fall and fail, including this preacher in this area. Any one of us. And the word of God is not addressing someone. The word of God is not addressing a believer in Christ who, through weakness, stumbles, and is sorrowful, is repentant, and who is desirous of getting up and moving on. A true believer can fall, and fall even to sexual sin. But here's the truth. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, they're going to be miserable. They're going to be convicted. Their conscience is going to bother them. And they're going to come back Christ. That's what the Word of God teaches. What the Word of God is addressing here when he says The sexually immoral and adulterous, he's talking about people who make it a habit, even while being professors of Christ, followers of Christ, and they're living that way, living that way without batting an eyelid, just living that way continually, seeing it as normal, justifying their condition. I can live this way because you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my situation. You don't know how hard my spouse was. I'm therefore at liberty to do this. The Word of God says that such persons will come under the judgment of God. First Thessalonians 4, 6-8, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, Disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Someone will protest, well, why is sex apart from marriage or outside the confines of one's marriage so serious that God warns of judgment? And here's the answer. Such practices are serious because, among other ill effects, they erode and undermine family life. Look at marriages that have been affected by these kind of things. And notice the pain, the heartaches, the broken homes that result from these situations. Such practices... Invite God's judgment because they disrupt the marriage bond. They disrupt the oneness of the marriage bond. God, God's design in marriage, he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. When persons go contrary to that, and especially if they are practicing things that they should not be practicing outside God's will, For marriage, they are opposing God. Not only do these practices undermine and erode family life and disrupt the oneness of the marriage bond, but such practices dishonor the vows of commitment that spouses made to one another. Well, what must we make of our study this morning? As we've been seeing these past few weeks, being Christian takes us outside the realm of the abstract. It takes us outside mere talk, obliging us to give expression to our professed faith in Christ by demonstrating Christian love in our various relationships to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear as the writer instructs us in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 because our God is a consuming fire demands that we continually express Christian brotherly love first of all in hospitality towards saints the saints and strangers it demands that we be in solidarity with the suffering And it demands purity in sexual conduct. The question as we close this morning is this. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to enable us to meet these demands? And the answer, beloved, is this. The good news is this. To those who might be struggling. To those who might be troubled. To those who have fallen and are sorrowful. The good news this morning is this. That God who works. In us, both to will and work for his good pleasure by his indwelling Holy Spirit, Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, is the one who will enable us. May God grant that these things might be so in your life and in mine, for his name's sake. Amen.